recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I'm here with Deb. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. How's my sound? You sound good. Okay, good. Uh, I have you on speaker because I'm all alone, and I'm all closed up because winter's finally gotten here. Uh, We have about a half inch of snow on the ground, and I am so not prepared. Yeah, 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 I know. I, I I hope we have a light year this year myself. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a show that we talk about women. Fortunately for you, we've learned a lot, and you hopefully have learned a lot of things that were never told to us ever as women, or even in any women's study class you're ever going to see. Mainly we talk what, what the the theme of this is women that were in or around the revolution, helped with the revolution. Every woman that we have done has contributed in some way or shape or form to the American Revolution. Unfortunately for you, most of the women, we, a lot of the women we can't find a lot on. And this is one of, this is this instance right now. We are going to do the Wives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. And when their husbands signed this declaration, it was a death sentence for him, for her, for her children, for both parties' relatives on both sides, in-laws I'm talking about, cousins, anyone that was associated with these people, it was a death sentence. Unlike the crybabies that we have in our country right now, this was serious stuff. What's going on in our country right now is serious because we have crybabies, but they would have never been able to handle what these men and women had to go through. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, because it, when you have to remember they were British subjects at the time. They weren't American citizens yet, <clears throat> and they were um, subjects of the monarchy. And basically, by signing the Declaration of Independence or showing any rebellious acts against the crown was a treasonous act that was punished by death by hanging. So, and they, they basically just put the noose around their necks every time they put their name on something or, or, uh, Participated in a, you know, what they they called the 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 rebels um, acts of protest. Now, on this show, we highlight a patriot women, and and we highlight royalists. So, of course, these are patriot women that we're going to be highlighting now, and we have to to go back in time and kind of tell everybody where they lived, about the history, and this is how we do it, so that we make a complete picture. The other thing, um, especially about the Declaration of Independence, when they did say at the end their fortunes, they, they actually meant that. The British, we were all British subjects, and most of the governors of the colonies were, were placed there by Britain, by the king. The king put them there. So they were cronies of the king, and if they decided that you were being, what Deb said, treasonous, they could confiscate all of your lands, everything you owned. We did the same thing to the loyalists once the revolution began because 
well, they were loyal to the king, and actually we were using a lot of their um, lands that were confiscated and merchandise to help fund the war. Uh, we had no other funding at that time. That's why uh, they, we were sending out ambassadors to try to get money. So when they said their lives and their fortunes, that was serious. It was a real thing. It wasn't imaginary. It was real. Like, think about the IRS coming in and taking all your stuff, which they have. and have people have not right. It was a fact. Right. Exactly. Now, we're going to be going to Georgia, which is the Southern Theater. And in Georgia, well, we'll get into a little bit in depth more, but Georgia was the last to the party. Then the reason they were the last to the party was we're going to show you why. They had more to uh, give up uh, because of where their, lo- first of all, where their location was. Um, they had, they did not only had to deal with Indians, they had to deal with the Spanish because the Spanish were in Florida. And the signers from Georgia was Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, and George Walton. And we're going to highlight them and as whatever we can glean about their wives. And Deb's a great researcher, and if she could find anything, it would be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, digitalized anyways, but, um, or digitized, or however you say that. But, see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to all these funky tech terms. Um, but, yes, it is difficult if they didn't keep journals or their letters uh, were lost. Um, there's just not much around. And, of course, historians up until recently, uh, the past 50 years or so, basically ignored women unless they were, you know, some really outstanding person. But for the most part, women were ignored in history. And this is why one reason we're doing this. And thankfully, historians uh, have turned the page and they are now looking at the women and they are digging, digging, digging. So whenever we find something new um, and come across uh, documents or anything, we always include them um, as the digging continues. And uh, luckily there, there has been uh, some in the, in the past uh, 30 years or so, some really interesting information has, has been written about the women during this period. So it's very exciting. Okay, so on that vein, we're going to start with the history of Georgia. And this is from GeorgiaEncyclopedia.org. My system has all these big black blotches on it because we left it in two coals and the... um, Whatever it's made up of on the screen, it's some kind of liquid. I don't know what the heck it is, but it messed up my screen, so it's kind of hard to see sometimes. <laughs> yes, I, I know, I know. Okay, so the earliest Europeans in North America, the Spanish, never established any permanent settlements within the region that would become Georgia, as they did in Florida and along the Gulf Coast. Their only attempt to do so during a naval expedition by Lucas Vasquez de Alan in 1526 lasted only six weeks. Spanish expeditions moved through the region from the mid-1500s through the 1600s, the most notable of which was Hernando de Soto's expedition in 1540. His party's documentation of various Indian chiefdoms 
provide some of the best descriptions about native life in Georgia prior to the 18th century. See, they were native, okay, and Indian. They're not, I hate, I hate the terms that they use. I, I hate this, I hate the hyphen American, okay? Mm-hmm. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. We're all freaking Americans. Right. Except for the Somalis. Um, <laughs> Especially. <laughs> his party's documentation, da, da, da. Uh, the descriptions about native life in Georgia prior to the 18th century. The Spanish presence also included Catholic missionaries who established Santa Catalina de Gual and other short-lived missions at points along Georgia's coast from 1568 through 1684. These missions played a key role in assimilating the native populations of the region into the colonial system. Now, when we talk about Georgia coming late to the party, they're already the north and the middle was settled by English settlers by this time. You know, the English, the, the British were already here. We were already there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and in the surrounding areas, you know, um, all the way down the coast. <laughs> so that's why. So there's no, right now there's no um, British here at all. And they, the Spanish just came and went and came and went, and nothing was settled because nothing was, you know, permanent. They, did, they didn't make it, which has happened in a couple of different colonies, too. By the mid-1600s, English settlers from South Carolina made forays across the Savannah River and into northeast Georgia, engaging first in a thriving slave trade of Indians and later in even more lucrative deerskin trade, which continued well beyond the British colonization of Georgia. So as we've said this before, the natives were the first slaves. They didn't work out because they weren't they weren't as they weren't strong enough. And plus, of course, the diseases that the um, Europeans brought with them they they didn't have any immune systems to it. But um, again, blacks you were not the first slaves in any part of the world, by the way. Georgia's colonial experience was very different from that of other British colonies in North America. Established in 1732 with settlement in Savannah in 1733, Georgia was the last of the 13 colonies to be founded. Its formation came a half a century after the 12th British colony, Pennsylvania, was chartered and 70 years after South Carolina's founding. Georgia was the only colony founded and ruled by a board of trustees, and this is going to be important, which was based in London, England, with no governor or governing body within the colony itself for the first first two decades of its its existence. So that means it didn't have a formal charter because there's three types of colonies, and I I need to get this up. I think I have the link maybe for next show because I did it on the uncooperative radio show when we were talking about – what the heck were we talking about? I'll have to look on my notes. But they describe the the three types of colonies – because they all had different uh, charters, and they were set up differently. Georgia wasn't set up in the beginning. It had a board of trustees, but it didn't have any formal government, and that's important, too. This is another reason why they were late to the party, because they weren't really established as well as the other colonies. I mean, the other colonies had constitutions and everything. Georgia did not. This is interesting, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Georgia, Georgia was a very interesting colony throughout its its history um they they were they were i mean talk about independent american americans you know hey, even though they were still british 
uh, but they were still in, you know, what they called America, the American colonies. Um, it, it really was a different set of circumstances down there. Right, and this, the Board of Trustees are also going to play into how women were treated in this colony compared to the other colonies. Yes. Okay, let's see. Perhaps most striking, Georgia was the, was the only one of the North American colonies in which slavery was explicitly banned at the outset, along with rum, lawyers, and Catholics. I like the lawyers. Yeah, I like Can the lawyers. lawyers? <laughs> Can we ban lawyers? Yeah, but keep the rum. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, Jews did not receive explicit permission from the trustees to join the colony, but were allowed to stay upon their arrival in 1733. It's amazing how many people did not like the Catholics. Yes. Well, they thought they were a cult. And they didn't really like the whole, like, well, coming from England, um, you know, King King Henry VIII kind of took care of Rome. He, uh, and then, of course, there was Bloody Mary, his daughter, and then Queen Elizabeth took over, and she was a Protestant, the Anglican Church. Uh, so, yeah, they weren't really big on the Catholics, um, you know, coming from Britain, uh, which is why Ireland still has problems. Yep. Okay, uh, rum was eventually legalized in 1742 and slavery in 1751, marking the weakening of trustee rule. The colony was governed by royal appointed governors instead of a council of trustees from 1752 to 1776, ending with the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. Um, the initial impetus behind Georgia's founding came from George Oglethorpe. Okay. When, huh? James. Okay. James Orglethorpe, who envisioned the new colony as a refuge for the debtors who crowded London's prisons. However, no such prisoners were among the initial settlers. Military concerns were a far more motivating force for the British government, which wanted Georgia, named for King George II, as a buffer zone to protect South Carolina and its other southern colonies against incursions from Florida by the Spanish, Britain's greatest rival for North American territory. As a result, a series of fortifications was built along the coast and on several occasions, most notably the Battle of Bloody Marsh on St. Simmons Island, British troops that were commanded and financed by Oglethorpe kept the Spanish at bay. As the colony with the shortest colonial experience, smallest population, and least development, Georgia remained largely on the periphery of revolutionary war politics and wartime action. Though Georgians resisted British trade regulation, they tended to sympathize with British interests because royal rule had brought prosperity for many colonists and because they desired the presence of the British troops to stem the threat of Indian attacks, also of the Spanish. The colony and then the state was well represented at the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with three Georgians, which I just read, Button, Gwyneth, Lyman Hall and George Walton signing the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776. So that's why they took so long to do this. They were not at the First Continental Congress. They were at the Second Continental Congress. And that was only after, this was after Britain was just completely out of control. I mean, they had, they had to be so out of control to get the Georgians in on this. Um, and they were, and that was the only review. So, 
Let's see. Um, now I want Deb to read Women in Colonial Georgia. Okay. This is also from the uh, georgiaencyclopedia.org. Um, oh, I have to read my notes. Hold on. I, oh, God, my eyes are getting just terrible. Okay. Women were important in the settlement of colonial Georgia from its very beginning in 1733. The founding trustees of the Georgia colony understood, quote, how necessary a part women are in a family, unquote, and wanted them to fulfill their traditional roles. The tasks of men and women in a frontier society were complementary. The agricultural and charitable goals of the Georgia colony required both for labor and stability. Throughout the colonial period, women migrated and settled with families and religious groups, or sometimes as individuals seeking a new start. They came as wives, mothers, daughters, or sometimes alone as indentured servants or slaves. They were English, Salzburger, German, Scots, Irish, Sephardic Jews, and after 1750, African. Native American women also became a part of the colonial fabric, although they did not come under the government governance of the colonial government. White women had a clear place in the trustees' vision of the colonial Georgia society as a land of hardworking yeoman farmers providing needed products to England. But in a colony that was also intended to protect the exposed southern edges of the British North American frontier from Spanish and French designs, the presence of women was problematic. Men could both farm and fight, but women could prove a liability in the military operations of the colony. Early trustee policy sought to solve this difficulty with the establishment of policies and regulations that assured defensive preparedness. In the early years, land was granted to males and could be inherited only by males. Land belonging to male colonists who died without male heirs reverted to the trust for regranting to male citizens. Male colonists who settled in Georgia at the expense of the trust were limited to 50-acre grants, and even those paying their own way who could receive up to 500 acres in granted land had to have a male servant or family member for each 50 acres of their grant. This assured men for the defense of the colony. Otherwise, said Trust Secretary Benjamin Martin, the strength of each township would soon be diminished. Every female heir and tail who was unmarried would have been entitled to one lot and consequently have taken from the garrison the portion of one soldier. Reaction to this policy was swift. The earliest colonists protested did it. Men wanted their wives and daughters to inherit land because a man could never enjoy any peace of mind for the apprehension of dying there and leaving his child destitute and unprovided for, not having the right to inherit or possess any part of his real estate. Salzburgers pointed out that the female as well as the male sex have left their country for the sake of the gospel. Okay, stop right there. Stop right there. Yeah. This is important to note because we've talked about women in all the different colonies and even all the different counties and different cities. It was, this is why we were independent because each colony had their own needs, right? And this is not the first colony that you and I, Deb, has have had women having more rights than other colonies. So this, this false 
this false narrative of us not having owning land, us not having businesses is a funk. We've done it a million times. It depended on where you were and the needs of the individual places. Yes, and even when they said that, uh, you know, that there would be no inheritance from women, uh, the people were not pleased, and they reacted. So, uh, and it goes on to say, from the beginning, the trustees made exceptions and gradually began to change the policy to allow widows and daughters to stay on land. See, you can make a difference as we have just shown. Early misgivings about female colonists began to fade. Founding trustee James Oglethorpe increasingly came to appreciate the value of women, even in the southern garrison towns closest to the Spanish border. Oglethorpe encouraged the trust to send industrious wives with recruits because single men are very great inconveniences. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just tickled me. Um, efforts increased to give passage to wives, sisters, and daughters. Yes, we must keep the men civilized. <laughs> Family formed the basic structural unit of society, and so marriage was encouraged. The imbalance of males and females made women valuable and marriageable. The male was the head of the family who exercised the legal rights of the household. A married woman was a femme cover whose Legal existence, according to British law, was suspended during the marriage or at least incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband. A femme convert, I know I can't talk, Cavert did have dower rights, which gave her claim to property in case of a husband's death. She had to renounce this claim of dower to any land of the husband before he could sell it. Another protection that some women used in George's royal period was the pre-marriage agreement, which set a woman's property aside in a trust to which her husband had no access. Oh, that was a smart move. The woman kept the right to the property she brought into a marriage, including the sole right to sell it and to choose her heirs. Most women who exercised this right were upper class and were widows about to marry again. See, this is the thing. In, in, in Britain, things were very, very different. I mean, these people are basically, um, mo a lot of these people were, it was what is known as the frontier. And there were no really established urban centers. They, they, were, they were out there on their own, you know, the Spanish on one side, the Indians on the other. And uh, the environment can change a lot of, uh, perspective. And well, yeah, because the men could die at any moment. Right. So that that had to be addressed because it had happened more than once. Yes. Where England was so settled and, and so what they call today urbanized, um, you know, and it, it, society was very settled and people knew their place and people kept to their place. You know, they had the class system. Um, and, and, but out here, out in Georgia, in, in this, you, you could make, you basically make it up as you went along. I, I'm sure that a lot of the people in Georgia never met the trustees, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it, it's very interesting, um, how different the colonies were versus, you know, Britain. 
and the people that were making uh, all the regulations and laws for the colonies, of course, a lot of them had never been there. They had no idea how different it was. Okay. A woman was to be a loving wife, an affectionate mother, and a true housekeeper. Divorce was not allowed, but some women escaped from marriage by running away, although there were a few ways for them to support themselves. Most marriages, however, ended because of the death of one of the partners, and in early Georgia that could mean short marriages and equally brief widowhoods. Most men and women remarried quickly because marriage was an economic and practical necessity. Yes, because marriage wasn't just sitting on the couch watching soaps and eating bonbons. You had jobs to do. And the man didn't just run to an office, sit there and shuffle papers. You know, it it was life or death, whether he provided. And they had to um, make most of their own supplies at this point uh, because they didn't have, you know, big mega supermarkets. So when you think about that, marriage was a whole other cup of tea than it is today. Children also contributed to the growth and stability in the colony, and having fine children was one of the important functions of wives. Aware of the perils of childbirth, the trustees provided for a public midwife at trust expense, first in Savannah and later in both the northern and southern divisions of the colony. It was the only government position funded for a female. The midwives received a salary of five pounds per year plus five shillings per laying. They were required to attend to the poor and to indentured servants. The trustees also sought to ease the pain of women brought to bed by providing an allowance of wine for women in labor. In addition to their reproductive labor, women were also producers, running households, preparing food and clothing, and helping with planting and harvesting when necessary. Now, again, it's so the women's movement, Deb, has really destroyed us. We are very important. The most important thing you can be in your life as a woman is a wife and a mother. Yes. It breaks my heart because, I, personally, I could never have children. Yes. And I bought into all that nonsense. I didn't even want to get married. Yeah, me too. Me too. But I did, and... I have a daughter, but uh, yeah, and and boy, when you when you do choose to have a child or to take care of children, I mean, adopt or you know have like you did, you had um, your husband's children there for a time. Your perspective changes because suddenly someone's well-being is of utmost importance, and that isn't always yours. does change things. So, besides being wives of farmers and planters, women sometimes owned land outright. Few women owned land in the trustee period. In the royal period, however, the number of women owning land and the amount of land they owned both rose. Women received headright grants of land from the government and also purchased land for themselves. Anybody applying for a head rights grant could receive a grant of 100 acres plus an additional 50 acres for each member of the household, including slaves and indentured servants. In 1777, the initial allotment per settler changed to 200 acres. By the end of the royal period, women had received more than 70,000 acres 
I just lost my place. I'm sorry. Um, under the Headright system. Wow, 70,000 acres. While some of these grants were for town lots, many were for farm acreage. Most farms were of modest size, less than 500 acres, but a few women acquired larger tracts, some more than 1,000 acres. Those with larger estates were like their male counterparts, slave owners. Um, and uh, let's see. Yeah, I think that's basically the... Uh, Oh, you want me to go down and talk about the, well, we can do the silk um, manufacturing business another time. Um, yeah, because I just wanted you to. Yeah, and right down to there, and then we can get into the, the ladies. Um, yes, because we can, We can. Uh, there's a couple of women that we'll be doing also that were manufacturing, in manufacturing, so. You'll have, have to come back and listen to that show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to get into the Waltons. And he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence from um, Georgia. I'm just looking at my notes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hmm. So George Walton was born in December 1749 in Farmville, Cumberland, Camp, Cumberland County, Virginia, the fourth child of Robert Walton and Mary Hughes. George's father died within a few months of his birth, and his mother died before he was seven. So tragic. Mm. But see, that was the point that we were bringing up, right, that these people, they just, they died all the time. Yes, yes. Wasn't life back in England. Okay. Um, he was raised by his uncle, also named George Walton of Prince Edward County, Virginia, who oversaw his education and welfare until he was apprenticed to a carpenter at the age of 15. George Walton was entirely self-taught. His employer would not permit him the use of a candle to read at night, but Walton burned pine knots to read by when his master realized that his young student had other talents worth pursuing, he released Walton from his contract. In 1769, George Walton moved to Savannah, Georgia, and studied law in the office of Henry Yoge, Jr. In 1774, Walton was admitted to the bar and took the oath of allegiance to the king that was required before an attorney was allowed to practice law in the colony. His older brother, John, had established himself in Augusta, Georgia. George joined him there and within two years built one of the most successful legal practices in Georgia. Back in the day, lawyers were completely different than they were today. They were supposed to be men of great, uh, great moral makeup. They were not like they are today. No. But we were more, more moral people overall back then. And that, that's really important. We've gotten away from morals in this country. And in order for us to have a really free country, we need our leaders to be moral. And we've lost that. And that's why everything is falling apart and corrupt. Okay. Um, in the years leading to independence, Georgia was largely loyal to the British crown. It was the youngest colony and sparsely populated. But Walton zealously 
uh, Walton supported independence from England and did not hesitate to make his feelings known in business and social circles. George Walton became heavily involved in the Patriot Movement in Georgia in 1774. He was one of four people who called a public meeting at a Tony's Tavern in Savannah. I just love that they we should go back to that death. At the tavern? Yeah, I just love that they all mean taverns. It's so awesome. It's like meeting houses, yeah. Public house. That's what they used to call them, the public house. <laughs> yeah. In Savannah on July 27, 1774, the group called for a provincial congress of delegates from each parish in Georgia to address how to protect their eroding civil liberties. Walton was appointed to the committee that created the Committee of Correspondence in order to spread um, the news quickly to patriots around the province and to correspond with patriotic individuals in other colonies. The royal governor and his council condemned the activities of the Provincial Congress, and when they met again on January 12, 1775, many members were still hesitant and voted to send a letter asking for a redress of grievances to the British monarch, instead of taking the stronger advice from Walton and other patriots advocating separation from Britain. Walton openly urged independence. Georgia was the only colony that had not sent delegates to the Continental Congress. Walton was appointed secretary of the Provincial Congress and was made a member of the Committee of Safety that ran the provincial government's affairs when the Congress was not sitting. He soon became the president of this committee, making him essentially the governor of the provincial legislature. So, with that, Deb, you're going to continue with his wife? Yes. Okay. Hi. Oopsie, I just dropped something. Um... Okay, uh, Dorothy Camber met George Walton while he was attending the meeting in Savannah and where she lived with her family. Dorothy was then a teenage girl, attractive, poised, with the dignity and decorum of a well-bred British woman. She was apparently mature for her years, possessed of an unusually fine mind, warmed by a great capacity for love and loyalty, and capable of firm decisions. Dorothy's father, Thomas Camber, was loyal to the crown, and to him, George Walton was a traitor to the king. Camber forbade his daughter's relationship with Walton, but even her father's wrath could not halt their courtship. George Walton married Dorothy Camber in 1775, and they had two sons, Thomas Camber Walton and George Walton, Jr. When the Revolutionary War broke out, Dorothy's father returned to England and insisted that she go with him, but she refused to leave her rebel husband and remarry and remained with him during the perilous days thereafter. Let's see. The continual abuse of colonial rights by the king and parliament caused the Georgia Provincial Congress to finally join the other colonies in their efforts in July 1775, at which time five delegates were elected to attend the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, and that was Lyman Hall, Archibald Bullock, John Houston, John Zubley, and Noble Jones. One of these men turned out to be a loyalist. In February 1776, George Walton was elected to take his place. Because of his position in the state militia, he was delayed in leaving Georgia, but finally arrived in Philadelphia in late June 1776, and he quickly gained recognition and respect with his, from his colleagues. Okay, we can yeah. stop right there because okay. we have to get more into her. Yes. And you have to go to now the Southern Cousins uh, blog. But 
before you do so, explain to the folks how her rejecting her family was huge back then. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she was not the only one to do so. We've done a couple of other women who also did that. Um, but, yes, it was perilous for her, especially uh, being, you know, in a, in a, a fine position uh, in society um, because the loyalists, I mean, by this time, they're, they're the loyalists and the patriots, the, the Civil War had, you know, definitely been laid out. And it was the Loyalists versus the Patriots, and the the Loyalists really believed that the Patriots were were traitors to their king. That was a big thing at the time. I mean, the the British had always had kings and queens. And for you to, I mean, look at, um, oh, uh, what was his name? The one who who took down the king... um, Oh, I can't think of his name right now. But anyways, Cromwell. Cromwell. Um, oh, when you, when you went up against the king, that, that was not a good thing. So her choice to stay with a traitor made her a traitor in her father's eyes. And, you know, his wanting her to go to England was to save her from herself, basically, because he understood what you know the 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 what the word traitor actually meant you know as, as we said before you basically just put a a noose around your neck and if the crown caught you they would hang you so and the family members would be imprisoned and maybe hung hanged also so it was perilous for her to do that uh you know, luckily they were in love, and and he protected her, and and took care of her because she would have been in in dire straits any other way. So, okay. Now over at OurSouthernCousins.com, there was an article um, in the Augusta Chronicle in 1954, which is really sweet, and it talks about her, and it's by May Carter Winder. Um, and reading about men and women who have left their imprint on history, one frequently gains no conception of them as people of vitality who once lived, loved, and worked as do the flesh and blood people of today. History, however, is nothing more than a record of what living men and women do to express their dreams, their hopes, their ambitions, and their innate character. Sometimes the story of a single individual can be as fascinating as any fictional tale that portrays the romance and adventures of a hero or heroine whose deeds seem to be outside the realm of routine living. Unfortunately, however, history as it has been written generally fails to capture the vividness of past events. Because of this, many an interesting story is lost, sometimes irretrievably. And finally, even the very names of those who made past history are often erased from memory. Few people in Augusta today, for instance, would know who Dorothy Camber Walton was and why her name was any claim to be remembered. Yet Dorothy Camber Walton's life was filled with romance and adventure and was touched as well by the reflected glory of the great achievement of the signers of the American Declaration of Independence. She was the wife of George Walton of Augusta, one of Georgia signers of that historic document. 
In order to marry the Georgia Patriot, she defied her British father and casted her lot with those who had dedicated themselves to the creation of a free and sovereign United States of America. She was the daughter of Thomas Camber Esquire, who came to North Carolina from East Essex, England, shortly before the American Revolution began. She had two sisters and three brothers, and um, and Sarah Camber married John Habersham, and from them are descended some present-day Augustans. Romance begins. He was living in Savannah at the time his daughter Dorothy met George Walton, who had gone to Savannah to attend a meeting of patriots who were determined to wrest their freedom from the British crown. Her father, loyal to the crown, forbade her marriage to him who was a traitor to the king. Dorothy was then a teenage girl, attractive, poised, marked by dignity and decorum. She was apparently mature for her years, possessed of an unusually fine mind, and warmed by a great capacity for love and loyalty, and capable of firm decisions. Um, let's see. They were married on June 16th, 1770, uh, uh, well, no, um, 1775, I think. The, the date in the article is not correct, but their first son was born in 1776, so you figure, yeah. Okay. Um, this this is uh, it goes on as a, in, as she was a refugee from the war. Um, George Walton died when he was only fifty five years old, and Dorothy moved later to Pensacola, Florida, when her son George Walton II was appointed territorial secretary for West Florida in eighteen twenty one. Becoming later after acting governor of Florida, succeeding Andrew Jackson to the post. Before she reached that period of peaceful living, her days were surrounded by turbulence. When the battles in and around Augusta made it unsafe for women to remain in their homes, Mrs. Walton refuged to South Carolina. As the fighting moved towards Charleston, she started back to Georgia to find a safe haven at Old Sunbury but violent events intervened. The journey back to Georgia was made by water, and Dorothy started out in a small sloop, which was captured by a British man of war and taken in tow as a war prize. Dorothy was transferred to the warship, which headed toward England. En route, a severe hurricane swept the sea, and the ship was driven ashore on the Danish island of St. Eustatia. <laughs> Getting my U's and A's mixed up. There, Dorothy Walton was cared for by the British Council. In the meantime, it had been reported that she had been drowned at sea because the ship in which she had started out from Charleston had gone down in the hurricane. The news brought much sorrow to her many friends, who later rejoiced when they learned that she had been saved because of the transfer to the British ship. Little else is known of her life in those years, and not too much even about her life in Pensacola. So she did make it back. Um, and uh, she lived to uh, uh, another, let's see, yeah, she survived her husband by 28 years, and she was 75 years old when she died, September 12, 1832, um, and, and she's buried at, in Old St. Michael Cemetery in Pensacola, uh, so... This is Dorothy, and that was her experience. But in the meantime, uh, let's see, where are we going next? Um, 
Well, and that's another example of the tragedy that these women went through. Mm. I mean, she's another one of the of a, one of the ladies that we reported on that was dropped off on the Savannah shore almost the same way when the right. battles were going on. Yeah. Yeah. With all her belongings just sitting there on the beach. I know. And and the thing is, is we don't know much about a lot of the women. As this article mentions, their names are forgotten. They've gone from memory. Um, but the way we, we think, you know, the other two wives that, that we couldn't find much on, unfortunately, I mean, they were living pretty much with the same situation. And and for some, you know, it was uh, even more perilous because, you know, all their husbands went off to fight in the war. And some didn't come back, and some were taken prisoner. So this was, and, and, they, and these women had to flee. This is another thing that, that um, is, is lost in the history, unfortunately. How many women, I mean, the, the women that had, uh, you know, means um, could refuge at, you know, a family's house in another colony or another, um, you know, county away from the fighting, but they didn't know if they were going to come home to a house or not. Um, it, it was just, it was war, and you never knew. You know, I, I still think about that woman we did who had the six children, you know, and, and a babe in arms, and, and in the middle of the night, you know, all the, the townswomen are fleeing because the British are coming and the patriots are there and they're going to fight, and they had to flee in the middle of the night with just what they could carry on their back and all these little children who were probably frightened to death, you know, so... It's too bad that the women were so long neglected. They, their stories are are very touching and uh, perilous. Um, while I'm doing this, could you? I'm good because we're going on to our next signer. Yeah. Um, I need you to look up St. John's Parish in Georgia. Okay. How's your internet? Hi. Okay, good. <laughs> Your mind's a little touchy tonight. Uh, when when was it? Saturday? We hardly had any internet at all. I'm attributing that to the holiday um, and, and the towers being overwhelmed because when I did our, the uncooperative radio show, we just kept cutting out. Thank God we have a, an online uh, recording of it that records it to our hard drive because we were dead in the water. And even now when I'm loading these pages, I should have had them up before. It keeps telling me that the page is broken and I have to reload it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I am going to talk about um, Lyman Hall. And this is from a woman history blog. And it goes back and forth because he actually had two wives. And I was going to have you, Deb, do something on um, Abigail, but it's easier for me to just put it in order while I'm looking at it. So is that all right? Yeah, and there's not much on her either. Right. All right. Um, and that's why I want you to look up for John's Parish, because St. John's Parish, because it's really important 
to getting them into uh, Georgia, getting Georgia delegates to sign. Okay, let me just, I'll say this while you're looking it up. All three of these men are from different parts of Georgia. So what we're trying to tell you is that these women are, are over here, this woman's over here, and this woman's over here with their husbands. But they're in different areas of Georgia. And what the, the point is that everyone's trying to get Georgia to be on board with getting out of under British control. They're the last ones to the party. Like we kept saying, we're going to keep saying. So this is really crucial because here where we just left, um, where was the Waltons? Hold on. The Waltons were in, they were in Savannah. And now the Lymans are in this uh, St. John's Parish, which is a different part of Georgia. And then when we get into Button, he's in another part of Georgia. The, the other colonies, like everybody in the New York delegation, they were from almost the same place in New York. They were from New York City. Same with the Philadelphia condition, con, um, delegate. They were in Philadelphia. Mm. This is, these people are all over the state the colony, which makes it unique as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it was huge. That area was huge, and, and it was sparsely populated. Right, there wasn't that many people. So, so to get these people to get together was amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, so let me start with Lyman. Dr. Delyman Hall went to Yale College and studied theology, graduating in 1747 at the age of 23. He also studied theology with his uncle, the Reverend Samuel Hall, in Cheshire, Connecticut. He was called to pastor in 1749 in Stratfield Parish, now Bridgeport, Connecticut. Certain parishioners opposed him, and he was dismissed in 1751 after allegations were made against his moral character. For the next two years, he continued to preach, substituting in vacant pulpits, while he also began to study medicine and teach. He went back to Yale this time to the to medical school. Okay, so um, da, da, da. in between here, because he's graduated in 1747. Um, let's see. The only thing they have is that Mary Osborne was born on, this is his first wife, August 8th, 1736, at Fairfield, Connecticut, the daughter of Samuel and Hannah Osborne. Um, see, that's all I can see on her. Yeah, that was, I couldn't find anything else either. Okay, no, I'm getting it confused. His first wife was Abigail. Yeah. And she died. Okay, so I'm, reverse that. His first wife was Abigail. In 1752, Lyman married Abigail Burr, Fairfield, Connecticut, on May 20, 1752. But she died on July 8, 1753, at the age of 24. They had no children. Lyman graduated from Yale again in 1754, settled in his native town of Wallingford, and began his practice of medicine. And then he married Mary. Mm-hmm. And they were going to, we're going to, okay. Lyman Hall married Mary Osborne of Failsfield, Connecticut, on July 29, 1757. All right. So his first wife was Abigail, and now this is the second wife. In 1757, the Halls migrated to South Carolina and established himself as a physician at Dorchester, a community settled by Congregationalists 
migrant from Dorchester, Massachusetts, who had arrived, arrived decades earlier. When these settlers moved south to Georgia's coastal midway district in St. John's Parish, the Halls went with them. This area provided more land and a healthier climate. The inland plantations skirted malarial swamps. In 1758, the colonists finished their immigration and founded the town of Sunbury, Georgia, which evolved into the thriving seaport hub of the surrounding slave-based rice indigo economy. The town was laid out on high, beautiful land facing the Midway River. Dr. Hall bought two of the nicest lots and built a summer residence there, as did many other planters. Dr. Hall became a leading citizen of Sunbury, and as he became leading, so did she. Everyone doesn't, you explain it better than I do. Whatever your husband does, you do. And if he's a leading member of society, so so have to, you have to be as well, right? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, um, okay. His medical practice prospered, and he bought land in Burke County in 1760 and built a, a rice plantation a few miles out of town called Hall's Knoll and continued practicing medicine which became one of the more successful offices in the area, not only for his patients in town, but he also made house calls in the countryside. He enjoyed visiting his patients and had the bedside manner of a sympathizing friend. Lyman and Mary Hall had one son, John, born in 1764, and they became members of the Midway Congregational Church. Dr. Hall was still a young man in his early 30s, six feet tall, well-proportioned, cultured, and educated, had polite manners and one was was of a well-rounded character. His public spirit and thoughtful views made him popular among the inhabitants of St. John's Parish. Now, did you find anything on St. John's Parish? I did. And Good. I have also been to the historic Midway Congressional Church. We awesome. Were when we went to visit my daughter at Port Stewart. Um, and I went with the dolphins in Pensacola. Oh, yes. There were no dolphins in, in Georgia, but, you know. Yes. <laughs> there was a church. <clears throat> Beautiful church. Oh, my God, it was just gorgeous. <clears throat> okay. Um, so this is about Midway, but it talks about St. John's Parish because St. John's Parish is in Liberty, Liberty County, and Midway was basically the beginning of it all. So... Um, it's located on Highway 17 between Savannah and Darien and has a long, distinguished history. The community was founded by English Puritans who migrated to St. John's Parish, Georgia, from Dorchester, South Carolina, in 1752 and established two settlements, a new Dorchester and another nearby settlement, which became the much more prominent Midway community. The Midway colonists received sizable land grants in St. John's Parish primarily because the colonial officials wanted a large number of settlers there to protect them from the Creek Indians. These first settlers were soon joined by families from England, Scotland, and South Carolina, and in 1754 they founded the Midway Society, a congressionalist group in which Christianity and daily living were closely interrelated. The first permanent meeting house was erected in 1756, and the first service was held in 1758. The Midway settlers developed a strong agriculturally-based economy, and their wealth came from the cultivation of rice, indigo, and other crops. These settlers held 
strong political opinions and took an early stand for independence. In May 1775, a St. John's Parish resident, Lyman Hall, was sent as a delegate to the Continental Congress. A year later, Hall and another St. John's Parish man, Button Gwinnett, along with George Walton of Augusta, signed the Declaration of Independence. And in 1777, as a result of this strong support for independence, St. John's Parish combined with St. Andrews and St. James Parishes to become Liberty County. So there was just a whole buzz full of patriots down there as they were the first area in Georgia to send representatives to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. So, And they also sent wagon loads yeah. with, with Lyman Hall to feed the Continental troops surrounding Boston, Massachusetts. Well, and you know, it's it's the shame we didn't find out why that part of Georgia was more patriotic. Like, what did the crown do to them more than they did to anybody else? Well, it was it was um, founded by uh, or settled by Puritans. Puritans didn't have much use for England. They were um, they were uh, well. They were actually terrorized. In England, I mean, well, that's what I'm going to say. They were, yeah, they were persecuted. Yeah, persecuted. Which is why they left in the 17th century. So you got a bunch of Puritans down there, and I'm thinking, you know, they, uh, yeah, the crown, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So you could see why they would be fighting for, you know, independence. Religion. Religion. Freedom to worship. Yep. Not freedom from. Yep. So. Okay, so you did the parish, you did the congregation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so I need to go back. Hang on. Where we were. All right. When the trouble with Britain erupted in the mid-1760s, St. John's Parish stood apart in its opposition from virtually all the rest of the colony, except for another cluster of revolutionaries at Savannah. So that's where... um, the Waltons, they're in Savannah, and they're here in this parish. And Waltons both were in Augusta. Hmm? Waltons were in Augusta. Okay. Gwinnett, Button Gwinnett and Lyman Hall were from Savannah. Well, Lyman Hall right now is in St. John's Parish. Well, that's right up, that's just down the road from Savannah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sunbury okay. is just... You know, you can you go up 17 and or let's see, over 17 to Sunbury. I mean, it, it we took the day drive. I mean, it wasn't very far. All right. Um, when the differences between England and her American colonies were discussed, separation between them was seriously considered. 
Lyman Hall's sympathies from the first were with the colonists. The colony of Georgia refused to join the Continental Association, whose purpose it was to enforce the boycott of British goods. Georgia was the youngest, most remote, and most remote and most sparsely settled colony, also the poorest. It felt less the impact of British economic restrictions. The loyalist ruling aristocracy of Georgia regarded the tiny band of revolutionaries with contempt and resisted their every move. And this is exactly what's going on right now in our country. Yeah. Um, it's, it's horrible. In Georgia, more so than sister colonies, there were great divisions and sentiment on the political questions within the community. Parliament had awarded great sums of money and other generous bounties in the colony's recently settlement years. The royal party was active and strong, and the governor was energetic in upholding the fortunes of his royal master. The governor was able to delay Georgia's representation in the Continental Congress, so there were no Georgia delegates appointed to the 1774 Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Also, because um, when they're saying they were poor, sparsely populated, they had to, it was hard to get messages around, and um, Philadelphia was really far away from Georgia, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. You had to get up the money. You had to figure out what, you know, you needed when you were up there, depending on the weather, because you're in Georgia, it's sunny, it's warm, and Philadelphia is cold. So it, it was a big in Denver to do this. It was because, um, let's see, Philadelphia is a couple of hours away from us. And when I drove down to Savannah from where I live here at the tip of Virginia, it was over eight-hour drive down 95, which, you know, you can get some good miles going on at 95. So you figure um, even in a, in, on a horse, it would take a few days of riding, you know, except to, to sleep at night. You'd probably be four days, depending on the the roads and and whatnot. Well, yeah, and well, like what we're saying on the weather. Plus, yeah. they probably have to stay overnight in taverns. Oh, yeah, um, which or, is going to cost them money. Or they just stayed in the you know found a field. If they you know if there was wasn't a tavern along the way, it's not like you know the Holiday Inn at every you know every exit has. And stuff there. There weren't exits. There were fields and forests and you know, little well, also, and also Indians and Indians and British. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it wasn't a four-lane highway. No. As the revolution approached, St. John's Parish, in which Sunbury was located, became a center of anti-British sentiment in Georgia. In July 1774, a revolutionary convention met in Savannah, where Dr. Hall represented St. John's Parish. He was applauded by the poor representation of he was appalled by the poor representation of the parishes as a whole, and very disappointed with the lukewarm measures adopted by the convention, which elected not to send any representatives to the First Continental Congress. Hall dejectedly returned to St. John's Parish. Now. But the whole time he's gone, ladies and gentlemen, since we don't have anything on these ladies, who do you think was running everything? Yeah. She was. Yes. The wives to take over. Um, 
you know, they were young. These these couples were young. They had young children. Some of the delegates, of course, were older, and they had older, um, you know, offspring that could help. But, I mean, like, look at what Abigail Adams did up in Boston. You know, George, or George, John Adams had five farms, um, or three farms. Anyways, uh, you know, she had to deal with the overseers who were men, and she also had to take care of the household as well as as the children and their their schooling and you know there was it, it because farms and plantations were businesses and they had to be managed and if the husband wasn't there his partner was his wife took over for him Oops, sorry Trying to open my window a little. Making terrible noise. Sorry about that. Old farmhouse windows. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it with when and with the her, she only had one young son. That was it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um there was another convention in Savannah in January of seventeen seventy five. Dr. Hall represented St. John's Parish once again. When the delegates voted for more delays in negotiations with the king and failed to get Georgia moving toward joining the other colonies, Hall and others from St. John's Parish next sought to contract with the group in South Carolina, whereby they could deal and trade and bypass Savannah's control and increase the political pressure on the loyalists. This was rejected by the Carolinians. In March 1775, Dr. Hall called a meeting of patriotic citizens in St. John's Parish who unanimously elected him to represent them in the Continental Congress. Not the colony of Georgia, only St. John's Parish. On May 13, 1775, Dr. Hall arrived in Philadelphia and was unanimously admitted as a delegate. Since he did not represent the whole colony but only one parish, his right to vote was to be determined later. Fortunately, the Georgia Convention finally voted to join the Congress on July 15, 1775. So he was there in March, April, May, June, July. So four months later, they decided to join. So he was, uh, let me go back to the Waltons. When did he go to be? Hold on. Um, Yeah, he, then Lyman Hall, no, um, where am I? Dorothy Walton, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to see the the chain of like how, um, because Lyman Hall was the first one there, and when did George go? Let's see. Uh, oh, he was delayed in leaving Georgia because the man that he replaced. Um, you know, was a loyalist, so they okay. George Walton, but he he had a position in the state militia, and he arrived in Philadelphia late June 1776. So he was very late. Okay, so he was all right. So Lyman was the first one, and then when we get into, um, we'll, we'll see what uh, what is the other gentleman. Button, Gwyneth. Button. Button. Let's do, okay, so Lyman was the first. 
We know that. And it seems like Walton was the last, but we'll see when we get into Button. All right, um, let me get back to this. Uh, fortunately, the Georgia Convention finally voted and appointed five members to Congress, three of whom actually attended. And that's who we're talking about. In the following session of 1776, Dr. Hall spoke out most forcefully for independence from Great Britain. On July 4, 1776, at age 52, he voted for the Declaration of Independence and signed a parchment copy with most other delegates on August 2nd. Hall served in the Congress until, uh, Congress until 1780. And let me see on this other side if they say when he died. Um, let's see. Uh, after the Revolutionary War, I'm just going to see if they say when he died. They didn't, I'm not telling you when he died. Okay, so we don't have to do it after the Revolutionary War. Cause he did become governor of Georgia. That's something to so um, when the British invaded Georgia and captured Savannah, Sunbury was captured and Dr. Hall was accused of high treason. And that's when Mary and their son John escaped and joined Lyman in Philadelphia just before the British troops ravaged the Georgia coast. For nearly two years, the Halls remained absent and they suffered great financial loss from the British confiscation of their home plantation and slaves. In the process, Halls Knoll and their Sunbury residence were destroyed. So that's what happened to them, and that's exactly what we were saying, right? Our our fortunes, our name. Um, they lost they, everything. They lost um, them Yeah, when they came back to Georgia, their their home, their their livelihood was gone, and um, so they they made their home in Savannah, where he resumed practicing his profession and began to rebuild his plantation. But his leadership was sought once again, and in January 1783, he was elected governor of Georgia. So, um, But again, they had to, this is, a lot of people had to, they got a lot of stuff taken away from them, and they had to rebuild. And just like we do the loyalists, the loyalists, most of them left. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then they, in 1790, he purchased another rice plantation, and uh, the family moved there. And then he died at the age of 66 in 1790 in October. So. And she died three years later. Okay, and that was probably farther down on the article that you're reading right now. Yeah, and, and John Hall died childless shortly thereafter. Oh, so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, my God, what lives they had lived, though. Well, at least they got to see the end of the war and that we had won. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people didn't, Deb. I know, I know. A lot of them died in um, before uh, the Constitution Convention. All okay. right. So now we're going to Button. Yes, dear Button. Yeah, there was, and when we took our little trip that day and, and saw the, the church, and we went to Sunbury, but it was closed, unfortunately, at the time. So we zipped over and... There was a, um, a community of, of slaves there, and then they had a 
like one of the last slaves um, had built a house, and he and his wife lived in it, and they had the house. But there was also a museum. And uh, if you ever go down this area, it, it's really wonderful. It's around Hinesville and, and Darien and Midway. Um, but the museum had a copy of the Declaration of Independence with with all their signatures, and they also had items of Lyman Hall and Gwinnett Button in, in this museum. It was really neat. It was just wonderful. So um, if you ever get to go there... Oh, Savannah's wonderful. Okay, Button Gwinnett and his wife, uh, which there isn't much about, Anne, um, oh gosh, Born, Born, I just could think of Burr, um, Anne Born, and there isn't much on her. It's so sad that uh, there, there, there's nothing much to talk about her, but Button, uh, who was born in 1735 in Gloucestershire, England, to Welsh parents, yay, Revere and Samuel and Anne Gwinnett, and was the oldest of his seven siblings. He attended the King's School in Gloucester and shortly after began his career as a merchant in England. And while he was working as a merchant in Wolver, Wolverhampton, he married Anne Bourne in 1757 at St. Peter's Church when he was 22. And in 1762, he and his wife Anne moved to America. Button and his family arrived as the busiest port in the southern colonies, Charles, Charleston, South Carolina. He found that America was much different from England. Taxes were lower, land was plentiful, and there was more money to be made in the agricultural industry. By 1769, he had sold off his merchandise, moved to Georgia, brought, bought a large piece of land, and began a plantation. And Gwinnett used his experience as a merchant along with his business acumen on his plantation and was successful in the trade. In that same year, he was elected to the Provincial Assembly. And during his time in the Assembly, Gwinnett became great friends with his future fellow delegate, Lyman Hall, and bitter enemies with Lachlan McIntosh. And uh, let's see... Um, while Button was an ardent patriot, his first decision to support the American Revolutionary War was probably because his land was encompassed by St. John's Parish. If they were to secede, then it would leave him no other choice. Regardless of his reasoning, he would go on to serve faithfully and would put his name and life on the line during the Second Continental Congress. Uh, he supported the Declaration of Independence and signed it on August 2, 1776. He would be the second to actually sign the document. And after he signed the declaration, he and fellow signer Carter Braxton of Virginia hurried home to present a state constitution that had been written by John Adams. Carter went as far as Virginia with Button, and then Button continued to, Virgi to Georgia. Um, and uh, he lost to Lachlan McIntosh. Uh, for the uh, place in the Continental Congress, and that uh, continued to fuel his hatred towards Macintosh, unfortunately. And then he continued to serve his nation throughout the American Revolutionary War, and during his time he served in the Georgia State Legislature, and in 1777 he penned the original draft of the first state constitution of Georgia. 
He continued to rise in power and influence throughout Georgia and was made Speaker of the Georgia Assembly. He would serve faithfully and show great ability until the death of Governor Archibald Bullock after Bullock's death when it again continued to rise in political rank as he would be promoted to the governorship of Georgia. Here he would actively begin to thwart Lackland McIntosh, which would end in a famous duel between the two. Um, let's see. Um, Ned talks about his whole thing with Lackland, and then um, it doesn't really. This was during the war. I mean, this was the the duel that between these two men took place near Savannah in the town of Thunderbolt on May 16, 1777. The two men stood back to back and then walked only 12 feet apart and fired a shot at each other. Both were hit hard, but McIntosh's wound was less severe and Gwyneth was mortal. Three days later, he died from gangrene due to the bullet wound. It was a sad end to such a promising life. So he didn't he didn't uh, last to see the the war, and it doesn't say anything. Let's see if if this does here. Hold on. Oh, that's the wrong page. Let me see if they they say anything more about um, his wife. Okay. They oh, he and his wife had three children, Amelia Ann and Elizabeth Ann. Um and only one lived. Unfortunately, two of the the children died. Um but he did become a, a an outspoken radical. Uh he was present at the meeting at Tondi's Tavern in Savannah. <laughs> so, <laughs> great. Um and let's see, I'm I'm looking here. We're okay, we uh do 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 um council of safety. Um and suppose okay, it was exonerated and yeah, but kind of serious. He publicly okay, that was the duel. Uh was one of the rarest. It doesn't say anything about his wife, but I have no idea when his wife died. Um in fact, the exact location of his grave is unknown. So, see, this is so frustrating for me. How could he die? How could he die in a duel and then his grave be unknown? Unknown. Well, he died. Well, he was buried in Savannah's Colonial Park Cemetery, but they don't know where his grave is in the cemetery. You know what's really cool? When Brian and I first got the Land Rover, and this has to do with the graves, so I'm gonna the ship will turn around in a minute. But speaking of graves and unmarked graves, when we first got the Land Rover, we decided to go up into Massachusetts, up in the mountains, and I forget the the city or town we were outside of. And they had a four wheel drive trip uh, a trail up there, and even though. My husband's a very experienced driver, had been. He's driven ambulances and trucks and all kinds of different things. He had never been four-wheeling. So we wanted to do really, you know, baby ones first. And it was severely wooded, and he scratched up the land. I'm brand new spanking freaking Land Rover. He was so proud. He's got scratches all over it. Isn't that a man thing or what? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But in the middle of Massachusetts, in the middle of these woods, in the middle of nowhere, 
we came around, we found like three separate grave sites unmarked but with a with a, a stone on it. Mhm. Yeah. Well, you have to remember the it's really cold too because they were really old. Yeah, the the people would own land, they would farm it. It was their land. They and they had their family family burial um plots there on the farm. And then they died out and someone else came in and took over or whatever. I mean, um, you know, they, 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 and especially if you lived up in the hills, you know, you, you just buried them out back where, you know, the family was buried and, you know, they were never sent to a, a, uh, official cemetery. So, you know, you buried all over the place. They didn't have all the, you know, the rules and regulations at the time either for bearing. Yep. All right. Well, that's our three men and our three ladies. Um, Dorothy Walton, Mary Lyman, and did we find out Button's wife's name? But we didn't even have that. Yeah, Anne Bourne, but I it doesn't say anything about when she died or anything. Um, it's, let's see. That's fine because I want to do a couple more things. Okay. Um, Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking right now at the British response to the Declaration of Independence, and I need you to look up King George's response. Okay. Okay. All right. So, this is from study.com. Um, okay. The Declaration of Independence is one of the most important documents in the United States history. Most of us know the charges against King George III. No, that's not true. They don't. About, But what about his reaction? Okay. So, on July 4, 1776, 56 delegates from the 13 colonies officially signed the Declaration of Independence. This document established the United States as a new nation. That was very, very important. And that's why Georgia was so reluctant to do this, because they knew if they signed this, that it means that they're declaring themselves a new nation, which scared the bejesus out of them. They were tiny. They were surrounded by enemies. They didn't have, you know, no other colony was going to come to their rescue. Carolinians, like, poo-pooed them. And the only one that they had protection from was from King George. So, in the document, the 13 colonies declared themselves separate from England. The reasons for the separation were made clear throughout the Declaration. And if you go, and I urge you, everyone, go read the Declaration again. Read it out loud to your kids. We are going right now, as we speak, and I know, Deb, you don't agree with me, but we're in it. We're in it right now. I mean, even to the point, let me see if I can find it. My husband has this copy of a, uh, the, uh, everyone go out and get your pocket copy of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Um, let's see. We've added to it. We're so, oh, yeah, I know we have. We're so uh, beyond the Declaration of Independence now, it's not even funny. They didn't have a lot of the stuff we have now 
that is being taken away from us by all these regulations and everything. I yes, mean, the, the government has, has, has exceeded what King George even dreamed of. Well, right here in the Declaration, it says, he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. EPA. Yeah. Every yeah. single solitary regulatory agency is this. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. Yes, the SWAT team. I mean, the Department of Agricultural Ag- Agriculture has a SWAT team. The Social Security Office has a SWAT team. British soldiers? Mm-hmm. But right here, again, in the Declaration, for imposing taxes on us without our consent. Yeah. You know those little things? You know, if you look at your um, your, your utility provider, if you look at your phone uh, bill, mm-hmm. get anything there, down. Cable, the cable bills? Yeah, where it says fees. You know, those are taxes. They call them something else, so you don't know this. Penalties, taxes. If you don't have Obamacare, the to the the IRS is taking a what do they call it? I'm I'm not even sure what they call it anymore. A fee, penalty, but it's a tax. Yeah, it's a fee. They that's what they call it. A fee. Out having Congress sign in new taxes, they call them fees. Yeah, and here's another one. Um, he has transported, as he, he, he is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy. That's all of the Somali stuff. There was a Somali just killed people today. Mm-hmm. Obama is transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries. That's what these people are, people. All these brown pieces of crap coming over the border, they're not little kids. Some of them are, very few. And all these Somali refugees and everyone, all these Muslims from across the world, they're grown men. Not women, not families. This is going on now. And this was going on to over 200 years ago, and now we're back on it again. So please, go read the Declaration of Independence. Read it to your kids. All right. So um, the reasons for the separation were made clear. Yeah. The colonists believed that King George III was guilty of repeated injuries in legislation, judicial rule, military, and protection. Deb, are they protecting us from anybody? To the colonists, King George III failed them by not allowing them representation. The colonies were forced to follow English rule without having any of their own representation in Parliament. We're screaming at our elected cockroaches, and they're not doing anything we're telling them to do. Right. They were not allowed to have their own meetings or government. They also believed that King George III was holding secret meetings and forcing people to obey his rules. John Roberts comes to mind. What happened to... uh, the, the judge that was murdered. Hello, it's it. that we are beyond conspiracy, conspiracy theories. It's actually a conspiracy. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the uh, King George's response to the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> okay, well, let me get through this. So just okay. really, the colonists were angry that they were not given their own trials by jury in the colonies. They were forced to sail to England for trial. They also believed that King George III controlled the judges and influenced their decision-making. Hello? All the appointed judges? Hello? The colonists also felt very vulnerable. England failed to protect them at sea or from the Native Americans. <laughs> they're not protecting us from the people that they're bringing here illegally. Although they had repeatedly asked for help, King George III ignored their pleas. Okay. Um, once the document was signed and delivered to King George III, the colonies now recognized themselves as the United States. But how did King George feel about the accusation? Oh, uh, when Great Britain first received the Declaration of Independence, the country was silent. To them, this was another annoyance from the colonies. The colonists had sent previous letters to King George III that had been ignored, but this was the first time that they had declared themselves free from Great Britain. Um, this, is, uh, da, 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 da. this is how King George viewed the colonies. They were a nuisance, but relatively harmless, or so he thought. The governor government hired John Lind, an English politician and pamphleteer, to write a rebuttal to the Declaration. He wrote, answer to the Declaration of the American Congress, a reply that tried to pick apart the Declaration of Independence. See, I didn't even know that, did you? Yeah. Oh, you did? I didn't. Yeah. Um, Lind focused on the issue of slavery, saying that the colonists were actually angry that King George III had offered freedom to the slaves, which they didn't at that time. So again, he was a liar. Lind even mocked the writers for stating all men are created equal, yet they allowed slavery. Uh, of course, all of this was just a distraction. The colonists really paid no attention to the pamphlet. Following this, King George officially declared the colonies to be in a state of rebellion. By August 1776, the king ordered troops to the colonies. Once the Revolutionary War began, the citizens of Great Britain became more concerned about the colonies and their fight for independence. In October, King George III addressed Parliament, hoping to ease some of the concerns. He opened the address, wishing that he could inform them that the troubles were at an end and that the people he had recovered from their, had recovered from their delusion and returned to their duty. However, the colonists continued to fight and even openly renounced all allegiance to the crown. King George III accused the colonists of treason, but reassured the Parliament of England that this was still untied, was still united. Wait, let me do that again. King George III accused the colonists of treason, but reassured the Parliament of England was still ununited. All right, now and then it goes into, um, it goes into what he said, so I'm not going to do that because you have that. Yes. Okay. Yes, his, his, his Majesty's most gracious speech to both houses of Parliament on Thursday, October 31st, 1776. My lords and gentlemen, nothing could have afforded me so much satisfaction as to have been able to inform you at the opening of the session that the troubles which have so long distracted my colonies in North America were at an end, and that my unhappy people, recovered from their delusion, had delivered themselves from the oppression of their leaders and returned to their duty. But so daring and desperate is the spirit of those leaders, whose object has always been dominion and power, that they have now openly renounced all allegiance to the crown and all political connection with this country. They have rejected, with circumstances of indignity and insult, 
the means of conciliation held out to them under the authority of our commission, and have presumed to set up their rebellious confederacies for independent states. If their treason be suffered to take root, much mischief must grow from it to the safety of my loyal colonies, to the commerce of my kingdoms, and indeed to the present system of all Europe. One great advantage, however, will be derived from the object of the rebels being openly avowed and clearly understood. We shall have unanimity, unanimity, I can't say that word, unanimity, (laughs) oh, I, I, anonymity at home, founded in the general conviction of the justice and necessity of our measures. I am happy to inform you that by the blessing of divine providence on the good conduct and valor of my officers and forces by sea and land, and on the zeal and bravery of the auxiliary troops in my service, Canada is recovered, and although from unavoidable delays, the operations at New York could not begin before the month of August, this Success in that province has been so important as to give the strongest hopes of the most decisive good consequences. But notwithstanding this fair prospect, we must, at all events, prepare for another campaign. I continue to receive assurances of amity from the several courts of Europe and am using my utmost endeavors to conciliate unhappy differences between two neighboring powers, and I still hope that all misunderstandings may be removed and Europe continue to enjoy the inestimable blessings of peace. I think, nevertheless, that in the present situation of affairs, it is expedient that we should be in a respectable state of defense at home. Gentlemen of the House of Commons, I will order the estimates for the ensuing year to be laid before you. It is a matter of real concern to me that the important considerations which I have stated to you must necessarily be followed by great expense. I doubt not, however, that but that my faithful commons will readily and cheerfully grant me such supplies as the maintenance of the honor of my crown, the vindication of the just rights of Parliament, and the public welfare shall be found to require. In fact, he's asking for a lot of money here. My lords and gentlemen, in this arduous contest, I can have no other object but to promote the true interests of all my subjects. No people ever enjoyed more happiness or lived under a milder government than those now revolted provinces. The improvements in every art of which they boast declare it, their numbers, their wealth, their strength by sea and land, which they think sufficient to enable them to make head against the whole power of the mother country, are in our irrefragable proofs of it. My desire is to restore them to the blessings of the law and liberty equally enjoyed by every British subject, which they have fatally and desperately exchanged for all the calamities of war and the arbitrary tyranny of their chiefs. Hmm. Now, I also have Sam Adams' speech <laughs> after uh, in August of 76. Okay, before you go on, that sounds like every politician, almost every politician, and it definitely sounds like Obama saying, you know, why are you, know, why are you accusing us of doing this stuff? You've never been more prosperous. The, the, the unemployment rate is up. We're yes. giving you all this stuff. It sounds exactly the same. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's like that speech where he goes, they should be thanking me. Oh, you imperious imposter. 
You know, I mean, well, that's why we call on the uncooperative radio show. We call him Caesar. Yes, yes. We might as well have a parliament for Christ's sake up there. I know. We already do. As a matter, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Because this isn't even a, a democracy anymore. Yes. I mean, forget about the republic. The republic's been dead forever. But this isn't even a democracy. No. No, and they keep, you know, it's not. Because democ- de- democracy is mob rule, which is why the popular vote doesn't matter in the election of the president because we are a representative republic. And we have an electoral college, which is great because the electoral college allows little states like Rhode Island to have as much say as California or New York. Do you really want California and New York choosing your president? And you're not having a voice if you don't live in California and New York? We shouldn't have – the people shouldn't be doing this anyway. We need to send it back to the states. Yeah, we need that. We need the electors for. We need to do, not vote for a popular, you know, popular vote. But the thing that you bring up is a good point. Now, my state of Montana is huge. It's yes. a big state, but it has hardly any population in it. Right. Yeah. See, and and this is what the founders looked at. They wanted to be made. They wanted to make sure that every state had equal representation no matter what their size was or their population. You can have all the land in the world, but if you've only got, you know, one-third of the people of of New York City. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what my state is. My state is the fifth largest state, and it only has a million people in it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they were trying to avoid was, situation that we have today where California and New York are so populated, they outdo everybody in that situation. But if you get a chance to read Samuel Adams, where he advocates American independence, the uh, speech is August 1st, 1776. It's very long, but this one's a bridge. But there's a couple of a couple of things he says. I just love Sam Adams. Well, you know, the other thing is, think of how brilliant the founders were. They, they only keep saying, well, they couldn't envision the Internet. They couldn't envision this. Really, they couldn't envision the state of California full of so many people like it is today. But, Every- yes, they made, a provi- they made a provision for it. Well, the thing is, is they were, they were actually educated and not indoctrinated. There's, there's no colleges that that teach Western civilization anymore. There's no high schools that teach civics. You don't get the history of the United States. You get the 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 populist revision. It just burns me. Okay, so you have his uh, an abridged of his speech, and then yeah. um, that'll bring us to the top of the hour. Okay, let's see. Um, okay, I mean, this is this is really great because it, it talks about the. I mean, it was hard. They were British. They were British citizens until they decided that the the crown wasn't doing them any good here. Um, our forefathers, tis said, consented to be subject to the laws of Great Britain, 
I will not at the present time dispute it, nor mark out the limits and conditions of their submission, but will it be denied that they contracted to pay obedience and to be under the control of Great Britain because it appeared to them most beneficial in their then present circumstances and situations? We, my countrymen, have the same right to consult and provide for our happiness which they had to promote theirs. If they had a view to posterity in their contracts, it must have been to advance the felicity of their descendants. If they erred in their expectations and prospects, we can never be condemned for a conduct which they would have recommended had they foreseen our present condition. Ye darkeners of counsel who would make the property, lives, and religion of millions depend on the evasive interpretations of musty parchments, who would send us to antiquated charters of uncertain and contradictory meaning to prove that the present generation are not bound to be victims to cruel and unforgiving destiny. Tell us whether our pious and generous ancestors bequeathed to us the miserable privilege of having the rewards of our honesty, industry, the fruits of those fields which they purchased and bled for, wrested from us at the will of men over whom we had no check. Did they contract for us that, with folded arms, we should expect that justice and mercy from brutal and inflamed invaders, which have been denied to our supplications at the foot of the throne? Were we to hear our character as a people ridiculed with indifference? Did they promise for us that our meekness and patience should be insulted, our coasts harassed, our towns demolished and plundered, and our wives and offspring exposed to nakedness, hunger, and death without our feeling the resentment of men and exerting those powers of self-preservation which God has given us? No man had once a greater veneration for Englishmen than I entertained. They were dear to me as branches of the same parental trunk and partakers of the same religion and laws. I still view with respect the remains of the Constitution as I would a lifeless body which had once been animated by a great heroic soul. But when I am aroused by the din of arms, when I behold legions of foreign assassins paid by Englishmen to imbrue their hands in our blood, when I tread over the uncoffined bodies of my countrymen, neighbors, and friends, when I see the locks of a venerable father torn by savage hands and a feeble mother clasping her infants to her bosom and on her knees imploring their lives from her own slaves, whom English men have allured to treachery and murder, when I behold my country, once the seat of industry, peace, and plenty, changed by Englishmen to a theater of blood and misery, heaven forgive me if I cannot root out those passions which it has implanted in my bosom and detest submission to a people who have either ceased to be human or have not virtue enough to feel their own wretchedness and servitude. Men who content themselves with a semblance of truth in a display of words talk much of our obligations to Great Britain for protection. Had she a single eye to our advantage? A nation of shopkeepers are very seldom so interested. Let us not be so amused with words. The extensions of her commerce was her object. When she defended our coast, she fought for her customers and convoyed our ships loaded with wealth, which we had acquired for her by our industry. She has treated us as beasts of burden whom the lordly masters cherish that they may carry a greater load. Let us inquire also against whom she has protected us, against her own enemies with whom we have no quarrel, or only on her account, and against whom we always readily exerted our wealth and strength when they were required. Were these colonies backward in giving assistance to Great Britain when they were called upon in 1739 to aid the expedition against Cartagena? They had at that time sent 3,000 men to join the British Army, although the war commenced without their consent. But the last war, tis said, was purely American. 
This is a vulgar error, which, like many others, has gained credit by being confidently repeated. The dispute between the courts of Great Britain and France related to the limits of Canada and Nova Scotia. The controverted territory was not claimed by any in the colonies, but by the crown of Great Britain. It was therefore their own quarrel. The infringement of a right which English ha England had by the Treaty of Utrecht of trading in the Indian country of Ohio was another cause of the war. The French seized large quantities of British manufacturers and took possession of a fort which a company of British merchants and factors had erected for the security of their commerce. The war was therefore wa waged in defense of lands claimed by the crown and for the protection of British property. The French at that time had no quarrel with America, and it appears by letters sent from their commander-in-chief to some of the colonies which to remain in peace with us. The part, therefore, which we then took, and the miseries to which we exposed ourselves ought to be charged to our affection to Britain. These colonies granted more than their proportion to the support of the war. They raised, clothed, and maintained nearly 25,000 men, and so sensible were the people of England of our great exertions that a message was annually sent to the House of Commons purporting that His Majesty, being highly satisfied with the zeal and vigor with which his faithful subjects in North America had exerted themselves in defense of his majesty's just right and possessions, recommends it to the House to take the same into consideration and enable him to give a proper compensation. But what purpose can arguments of this kind answer? Did the protection we received annul our rights as men and lay us under an obligation of being miserable? Who among you, my countrymen, that is a father, would claim authority to make your child a slave because you had nourished him in infancy? Tis a strange species of generosity which requires a return infinitely more valuable than anything it could have bestowed, that demands as a reward for a defense of our property a surrender of those inestimable privileges to the arbitrary will of vindictive tyrants which alone give value to that very property. Courage, then, my countrymen. Our contest is not only whether our, we ourselves should, shall be free, but whether there shall be left to mankind an asylum on earth for civil and religious liberty. Dismissing, therefore, the justice of our cause is incontestable. The only question is, what is best for us to pursue in our present circumstances? We are now on this continent, to the astonishment of the world, three millions of souls united in one cause. We have large armies, well-disciplined and appointed, with commanders inferior to none in military skill and superior in activity and zeal. We are furnished with arsenals and stores beyond our most sanguine expectations, and foreign nations are waiting to crown our success by their alliances. There are instances of, I would say, an astonish almost astonishing providence in our favor. Our success has staggered our enemies, and almost given faith to infidels, so we may truly say it is not our own arm which has saved us. The hand of heaven appears to have led us on to be perhaps humble instruments and means in the great providential dispensation which is completing. We have fled from the political Sodom. Let us not look back lest we perish and become a monument of infamy and derision to the world. For can we ever expect more unanimity, oh, there's that word again, anonymity, and a better preparation for defense, more infatuation of counsel among our enemies, and more valor and zeal among ourselves, the same force and resistance which are sufficient to procure us our liberties will secure us a glorious independence and support us in the dignity of free imperial states. We cannot suppose that our opposition has made a corrupt and dissipated nation more friendly to America or created in them a greater respect for the rights of mankind. We therefore expect a restoration and establishment 
of our privileges and a compensation for the injuries we have received from their want of power, from their fears, and not from their virtues. The unanimity... (laughs) I keep saying this word. And valor, which will affect an honorable peace, can render a future contest for our liberties unnecessary. He who has strength to chain down the wolf is a madman if he let him loose without with, without drawing his teeth and paring his nails. Uh, let's see. We, um, how does it end here? Our union is now complete. Our constitution composed, established, and approved. You are now the guardians of your own liberties. We may justly address you as the Decemviri did the Romans and say, nothing that we propose can pass into a law without your consent. Be yourselves, O Americans, the authors of those laws on which your happiness depends. You have now in the field armies sufficient to repel the whole force of your enemies and their base and mercenary auxiliaries. The hearts of your soldiers beat high with the spirit of freedom. They are animated with the justice of their cause, and while they grasp their swords, can look up to heaven for assistance. Your adversaries are composed of wretches who laugh at the rights of humanity, who turn religion into derision, and would for higher wages direct their swords against their leaders or their country. Go on, then, in your generous enterprise with gratitude for heaven, to heaven for past success and confidence of it in the future. For my own part, I ask no greater blessing than to share with you the common danger and common glory. If I have a wish dearer to my soul than that my ashes may be mingled with those of a Warren and Montgomery, it is that these American states may never cease to be free and independent. Oh, that makes me cry. Oh, tears. Come to my eyes. It is so important that we save our country. It really is. And we need to lay this out. There's all these little talking points and back and forth and between conservatives and Prague. No. We as conservatives need to lay out what is happening to our country like he did. He did bullet points. If that, if that even makes sense to anybody, my husband's a fan of bullet points. I'm not. But he did. He laid, just like they did in the Declaration of Independence, what we're protesting against. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be laid out from the beginning to the end. And that's the problem we're having. We're not, cohere- we're not cohesive. Even amongst those who... Who want to get it? Who want to get our country back? We're just not cohesive. It's a simple thing. Yes. And that was fantastic. Yeah, he had several those. Um, that's why I love him so much because he called a spade a spade and he didn't hold back. I just lost my internet connection. Up mm. oh, just in time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he understood and, and Sam Adams wasn't, he wasn't a success in, in the commercial world. God, he kept screwing, you know, he had these businesses and he never was any good at it, but my God, the man understood independence, freedom, the pursuit of happiness and private property and the fact that, um, 
the government does not own you. You are not their slave. As he, I love the line where he goes, would a father, you know, make his son a slave just for having fed him as an infant? And, and the thing that kills me the most is that these people who are representing us and those who are not even elected to represent us, the bureaucrats, um, have no idea that it's not the government who tells us how to live. We tell the government how to govern. Well, they're not supposed to govern. Well, you know what I mean. They, they, we give them their power and they, we tell them this is all you got, you don't got no more. Right. You know, so um, it it is it is something when you when you do uh, when you do read the words of the founders um, and and what they had to say is just. Remarkable. Well, and bringing, going back around to the Declaration of Independence and the signers, those women, could you imagine just sitting there going, oh, my Lord, my husband is going to go. I mean, even as much as you agree with him and you, you want to get away from the crown and you have hopes and dreams, there's got to come a point where you're just sitting there saying, my husband's actually going to put our family name on this document. Mm. Like, this is really going to happen. And unfortunately, we have to, we have to step up and know that we're going to have, if we're going to do this, we're going to be the put in my family or our lives on the line. At some point, this might happen. Yes. yes. And you have to be willing to do it. Well, and this is is what is so upsetting is um, and why so many things are are being uh, tolerated because people are afraid of of, uh, uttering anything that might be construed as an ism or a phobia. Well, yeah. what I'm going more against is the veterans. Yeah, I'm I'm going through it right now, and I'm gonna I will bring this up on our show because I'm gonna bring it up on a, on cooperative radio show once I get my ducks in a row. But the first thing is someone says to you, "Well, they'll retaliate if you go after them." Right. Yeah. Yes. See, it it when this all started back. Oh my God, when I was going to the rallies at DC you know, supporting our, our troops against the uh, the anti-war people um, and, and visiting Congress critters in their lairs uh, about our soldiers and our veterans and Marines. Um, it was, I didn't care. You, you have to think, am I willing to lose my job? Am I willing to go to jail am i willing what am i willing to do for the what you know the cause the whatever was going on at the time but from now it's our country what are you willing to do or lose 
I know, and I've done that with jobs as well. When mm-hmm. I was working for the state, I fought with them tooth and nail, first of all, not to have a, a union get in there. And number two, I was fighting with the administration all the time. And even when I was a travel nurse across the country, I was fighting with the administration, charge nurses, the whole bit. And everyone kept telling me, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your job. Well, guess what? Deb, I was willing to lose my job. It was my patients were more important than this freaking right. job. Exactly. It's like, Just like this country is more important. Yes. And, and I've gone up against the schools and I wish more parents would do this, um, when it came to my child. You know, I took on teachers and I took on other people. Uh, and I took on Congress critters. Well, that's what I'm going to have to do. Anyway, I'm going to have to go up against the man, man. And the mm-hmm. man, the man is not what the freaking hippies are talking about. The oh, government is the man. Thing, this whole thing about the man, you know, it, it's hysterical to me when Obama got in and and suddenly the whole administration were old hippies and hippie wannabes and activists and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, they fought the man. Now they are the man. Yep. They are now Charlie. Yep. <laughs> and they're, right. they're even more intolerant than the, the man that they were fighting again. Oh, it's hysterical. Anyway, with that, we're going to have to end the show. Uh, I urge everyone, since we are going to have to have this fight, to go to patriotspub.us, patriotspub.us. That's uh, about the Continental Congress of 1787, and it is apolitical, just the fact, what they talked about to write the Constitution in their own words by three self-taught historians reading day by day the Constitution. We need to learn how and why to know what we're in for. Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us. And as always, Deb, take us out. Well, as you're listening to these shows that are so beautifully done um, about the Constitutional Convention, do have a, uh, a, pay, a website of the Webster's Dictionary 1832 um, uh, edition because our words have changed in definition and you want to know what the the founders actually meant by what they said they chose their words very carefully so if you have the dictionary then you can know what they were saying as they meant it and as always please pray for our kids in uniform it's not good we've been losing more this past month and um our veterans who are getting shafted for their care that they earned and they were promised, contracted. Go visit yeah. a go visit a VA hospital, talk to some of these vets, see if there's anything you can do to help them out. And you can yeah, always... my husband my husband's one of them. We'll be talking about it more. Mm-hmm. And as always, good night, Loki. We miss you so. And with that, thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the show. And we shall see you next week with another Patriot lady from the Revolutionary War. Thank you all for coming. Good night now.